Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned. This podcast contains saucy language of the modern and early modern variety. So plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice you can make. Don't say we didn't warn you. Did you actually read this play, P.S.? Yes, I did. Okay. All right. Just asking. It's not not a an accusatory thing. It's also not an unreasonable think? question. I completely understand. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> Given what did my you track think? record. I dig it. I seriously yeah? dig it. I have yeah. um I I can't I maybe I should go back and count how many times I've written WTF in the margins. Right. Um because these people cray. <laughs> to the hurly burly shakespeare show we are your hosts jess hamlet and aubrey whitlock and together we are whamlet uh and this week we are talking about john webster's the duchess of malfi each week we discuss a different play sometimes by shakespeare sometimes not and this week it is a 101 level episode for good old john webster yeah that's introductory stuff everything you need to know to have a general understanding of the play and its themes and other cool stuff you're gonna get nowhere else like our opinions and also today, a little mini biography of your boy John Webster. So it's time to yeah. meet the contemporary <laughs> John Webster. This is your life. Uh, you, so you will remember John Webster, probably, uh, because how could you forget, uh, as the weird, dirt-covered, mouse-killing child in Shakespeare in Love who likes yes. it when the heads get cut off. Yes, in our favorite documentary, Shakespeare yes. in Love. <laughs> when I write plays, they'll be like Titus. Yep, he sure loves his blood. Um, yes. Webster's life is a little bit of a mystery. We think he was born around 1580 and died around 1634, maybe. His life is kind of obscure and his uh, birth and death dates are not known. And this is partially obscured because his dad was also named John Webster. He married a blacksmith's daughter named Elizabeth Coates. Uh, in 1577, and it's likely that Webster was born not long after that in or near London. So Webster is a working-class London boy, basically. Uh, The family lived at St. Sepulchre's Parish. His father, John, and his uncle, Edward, were freemen of the Merchant Tailors Company. Uh, And Webster attended the Merchant Tailors School in Suffolk Lane. On August 1st, 1598, a John Webster lately of the new inn was admitted to Middle Temple Hall. So again, Middle Temple Hall, again, being that sort of famous or rather infamous law school, uh, one of the inns of court, um, where many of these guys actually go to begin their lives and then they're led astray by that tricksy mistress, the theater. <laughs> so Webster's just one in a long line of these guys who do this. It's not, a, not actually a great law school. If you think about it, it turns out more playwrights <laughs> than it does lawyers. <laughs> Well, I mean, we just don't know that's all the lawyers true. That that's, out, right? I mean, who cares about the scholars. lawyers? Yeah, who cares about the I'm lawyers? I'm sure it produced as many lawyers as dramatists, <laughs> at least at least in equal uh, numbers. Uh, so anyway, uh, we know that in 1605, Webster married a 17-year-old Sarah Peniel, um, who was seven months pregnant at the time. 
Um, their first child, John Webster III, was baptized uh, at the parish of St. Dunstan in the West in 1606. So, like, further obscuring historical records, he just keeps the John Webster name going. And bequests in the will of a neighbor who died in 1617 indicate that other children were born to him as well, though there's kind of no details on them. So, there you go. By 1602, Webster was working with teams of playwrights on history plays, most of which were never printed. Thank God we don't need more history plays. Speak for yourself. Showing her whole ass on the Internet. (laughs) Um, These included a tragedy called Caesar's Fall, which was written with Michael Drayton, Thomas Decker, Thomas Middleton and Anthony Munday uh, and a collaboration with Thomas Decker called Christmas Comes But Once a Year. Uh, which was also in 1602. Um, With Thomas Decker, he also wrote Sir Thomas Wyatt, which was printed in 1607 and probably first performed in 1602. Um, He worked again with Thomas Decker on two city comedies, Westward Ho in 1604 and Northward Ho in 1605, together with Eastward Ho. That makes up the Ho series of plays. How come none of these hoes went south? I don't know, but that is the only one that does not, I think, exist. <laughs> um, of course, now that I've said that, someone's going to fact check me and be like, actually, Southward Ho was written by Johnson in 1612. Um, I have read Eastward Ho. I have not read the other two Ho plays. And I feel 95% certain that there is no Southward Ho. Um, anyway, Eastward Ho is a shit show. <laughs> it's 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 bad ho ain't no ho a good ho uh also in 1604 (laughs) he adapted john marston's the malcontent uh to be staged by the king's men great uh and which is a slightly better play Mm, yes the malcontent which we talked about on the pod we did didn't we we did yeah yeah. some some many months ago when I was still uh, in coursework, so yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lifetime ago. Yeah. Um, despite Webster's ability to write comedy, he's best known for his two English tragedies based on Italian sources, The White Devil, which is a retelling of the intrigues involving Vittoria Accoramboni, an Italian woman assassinated at the young age of 28. Um, and that was sort of a flop when it opened at the Red Bull Theater in 1612. Uh, it was kind of unusual and a little too intellectual, apparently, for its audiences. The Duchess of Malfi, however, was first performed by the Kingsmen at the Blackfriars Playhouse in about 1614 and published nine years later. And that was a little more successful. Um, he also wrote a play called Guys based on French history, of which little else is known and no text has survived. Thank God. Um, Webster wrote one more play on his own. It's called The Devil's Law Case, somewhere 1617, 1619-ish. It's a tragic comedy. His later plays were collaborative city comedies, Anything for a Quiet Life, 1621, with Thomas Middleton, Cure for a Cuckold, 1624, with William Rowley. Um, Also in 1624, he co-wrote a topical play about a recent scandal called Keep the Widow Waking uh, with John Ford and Rowley and Decker. The play is lost, although its plot is known from a court case, parade. He is believed also to have contributed to the tragic comedy The Fair Maid of the Inn with John Fletcher, Ford, and Philip Massinger. And also his Appius and Virginia was probably written with Thomas Haywood, but we don't know exactly when. And that is what we know, or can guess, or can surmise, or can make terrible puns about the life of John Webster. That is John Webster for you. So moving on to the play itself, we are going to give you our five word unhelpful titles. Mine is 
well, it's seven words, but woman strangled for living her best life. Spoilers. Hashtag relevant AF. It's fine. <laughs> um, mine is also full of spoilers. <laughs> and this is sibling rivalry begets werewolves, apparently. Yes. Yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> it's a wonder there aren't more werewolves given how many siblings there are in the world <laughs> I, I just I, I just gotta get it out there I don't love this play but the there are things about this play that I really just fucking love and that's one of them yeah it's kind of random out of nowhere yep it's pretty great yep. We're going to yeah. talk about it. We're yep. going to talk about it. Yeah. Um, but first, we're going to introduce you to the Dramatis Personae, but only the really important ones. Uh, yeah. So we have the Duchess of Malfi. She didn't have another name. She's Rude. The Duchess. Yeah. She has a waiting woman named Cariola, or Cariola, if we're going to Americanize it. <laughs> sure. Um, she also has a twin brother. His name is Ferdinand. He's a dick. Yeah. He's a little cuckoo bananas. Um, she has an older brother. He's a cardinal. He's called the cardinal. So original. Yeah. There's also a spy for Ferdinand. His name is Basola or Bozola or Bozola or. I've been pronouncing and... it Bozola in my head, but I haven't yeah. really checked how it scans either. So I'm not sure that it matters. Uh, well, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I I will see what comes out of my mouth in the summary. But yep. it's, it's something like yeah, Bozola, Bozola, yeah. Boz, good old Boz. Sure. Yeah. So uh, the Duchess, Duchess No Name, has secretly married this guy named Antonio on the DL. Antonio has a ride or die BFF. His name is Delio. Yeah. Like, what's the Delio? <laughs> wow okay yeah. uh i'd be lying if i said i did not also think that in my head yeah. and put that together yeah. anyway yeah. um the cardinal despite his sort of vow of chastity as a cardinal Definite vow of chastity has a mistress her name is julia uh and then we've got you know like children and servants and aristocrats and also uh just because what play is complete without it um a whole heap of lunatics yep there's a whole bunch of them that'll make sense yep. later yep. yep uh so hey aubrey why should this play be so goddamn popular um it weirdly kind of is already yeah, uh, having a moment. yeah uh webster's two major tragedies the white devil and the duchess of malfi kind of make the rounds in regional theaters fairly regularly they do. um yeah. they've got they've got a pretty consistent uh production history through the at least through the 20th century mm -hmm. to now uh mm -hmm. it they they both kind of webster himself kind of fell out of favor in like 17th 18th century because people were like oh this is so unrefined and it ugh, and it's like well you know webster wasn't writing for you so shut up <laughs> um, but yeah for the last like 100ish years or so they've they've rotated through pretty regularly um i think malfi in particular stays relevant because it features a strong lady as a central character who is punished by the greedy sexist men around her just for living her life. And seriously, like, when is that not relevant? Real. So. Real. It's summary time. 
Woo. All right. Um, so we are going to summarize the Duchess of Malfi for you in a segment that this week they're calling there's more to this play than just werewolves, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, there is. We're going to about Frankly, to find out what it is. There shouldn't be, but there is. So we're going to tell you about it. <laughs> yep. I'm ready uh, when you are. Okay. All right. Here we go. <clears throat> Okay, uh, in Act 1, Basila angrily tries to gain the Cardinal's pardon, pointing out the time he has spent in servitude. Uh, he declares that he is surely done with service, but the Cardinal is not interested, and he leaves. Ferdinand comes to the palace talking to his courtiers about a tournament that Antonio has just won. In the background, Antonio and Delio comment on how villainous the Cardinal and his brother Ferdinand are. Of the three siblings, only the Duchess is good and well-liked. Ferdinand petitions his sister to make Basila the manager of her horses. When everyone else leaves, Ferdinand and the cardinal reveal that it is because Bozala is to spy on their sister. The cardinal and Ferdinand tell the duchess not to marry again now that she is a widow, going so far as to threaten to kill her. She refuses to be bullied, and once her brothers are out of sight, she proposes to Antonio by giving him her wedding ring. Having her maid Cariola as their witness, this private ceremony is legally binding, and the duchess and Antonio become husband and wife. Aww. Act 2. Bozala meditates on the mysterious way the Duchess is acting of late. He believes she is pregnant and aims to prove it by using apricots both to spark her pregnant appetite and to induce labor. Watch out, ladies. Apparently, that's what apricots do when you're pregnant. Uh, because that's obviously how pregnancy and apricots work. When the Duchess enters, she accepts the fruit from Bozala and quickly starts going into labor and beats a hasty retreat, claiming illness. Bozala realizes that the Duchess is indeed pregnant. Cariola enters with the good news once Antonio is alone, tells him that he is the father of a son. Antonio tells Bozala to stay away from the Duchess since he doesn't trust him. In Antonio's agitation, he accidentally drops a horoscope for his brand new baby son, which Bozala retrieves. He realizes what it means and resolves to send it to the Duchess's brothers. Ferdinand and the Cardinal, having received Bozala's letter, meet to discuss what their sister's treason is. In Act 3, time has passed. Mm. Antonio reveals that the Duchess has had two more children. Wow time. Uh, his friend Delio tells him that the ordinary people think the Duchess is a whore because they don't know that she is secretly married. While they talk, the Duchess and Ferdinand enter. He tells her, uh, Ferdinand tells the Duchess that he has found a husband for her. She disregards this because she's already secretly married to Antonio. When left alone, Ferdinand consults with Basila to discover the father of what he thinks are her three illegitimate children. Basila produces a skeleton key to the Duchess's room, which Ferdinand takes. Antonio at night comes up to the duchess's bedroom to spend the night and they banter back and forth about the point of lovers just sleeping together it's all real fucking cute and whatever uh antonio and cariola leave to allow the duchess to complete her nighttime preparations but she is not alone <gasps> ferdinand sneaks in and startles her Ugh. he gives her a knife intending her to kill herself and his fury increases when she tells him that she got married without his knowledge ferdinand leaves declaring he will never see her again he exits just in time because antonio bursts in brandishing a pistol. The Duchess tells Antonio to flee and she will send him all her treasure and valuables. He leaves. 
The Duchess confides her secret marriage to Basila. Basila tells the Cardinal. The Cardinal leaves to petition for her and her family's exile. Ferdinand goes to find Antonio. The Cardinal takes the Duchess's wedding ring and banishes her, Antonio, and their children. Shortly after their arrival in exile, Basila comes and presents the Duchess with a letter from Ferdinand, which indirectly states that Ferdinand wants Antonio dead. Antonio tells Basila that he will not go to Ferdinand, and the Duchess urges him to take the oldest child and go to Milan to find safety, which he promptly does. Basla and masked guards then take the Duchess and her remaining children captive on the orders of her brothers. Act 4. Basla greets the Duchess, telling her that her brother wishes to speak with her, but will not do so where he can see her. So she agrees to meet with her brother in the darkness. Like why? Classic. <laughs> Once the lights are out, Ferdinand enters. He presents her with a dead man's hand, leaving her to believe that it's Antonio's with her wedding ring on it. He then exits, leaving Basila to show the Duchess some wax figures of her husband and children made to appear as though her family is freshly dead. The Duchess believes them to be the genuine people and resolves then to die herself. Basila has a change of heart about helping the brothers. He pleads with Ferdinand to send his sister to a convent, refusing to be a party to the plot anymore. Ferdinand is beyond reason at this point and tells Basila to go to Milan and find the real Antonio. The Duchess and Cariola come back, distracted by noises being made by a group of madmen that Ferdinand has brought in to terrorize her. A servant tells her that they were brought in for sport and then lets them in. Basila, too, sneaks in with them, disguised as an old man, and tells the Duchess that he is there to make her tomb and when she tries to pull rank on him executioners with cords and a coffin come in the duchess makes a brave show telling the executioners to kill her welcoming her strangulation cariola is also strangled ferdinand comes to view the scene and then is also shown the bodies of his sister's children who were murdered as well Ferdinand reveals that he and the Duchess were twins and that he had hoped if she had remained a widow to inherit all of her wealth. Oh. Basila, sensing that Ferdinand is ready to turn on him next, demands payment for these atrocities. Ferdinand, distracted, leaves him alone with the bodies. The Duchess revives herself just a little bit. A shocked Basila has no time to call for medicine. He manages to tell the Duchess that Antonio is not really dead and that the figures she saw were fake before she finally dies. <sighs> okay, act five. Mm -hmm. Antonio returns to see if he can reconcile Ferdinand and the Cardinal. The Cardinal's mistress, Julia, presents Pescara, our Marquis, with a letter from the Cardinal which states that she should receive Antonio's property and Pescara grants her the property. When Pescara leaves to visit Ferdinand, who is sick, Antonio decides to pay a nighttime visit to the Cardinal. Pescara is discussing Ferdinand's condition with the doctor, who believes Ferdinand may have lycanthropia. The doctor thinks there is a chance of a relapse, in which case Ferdinand's disease behavior would return, namely digging up dead bodies at night, because that's what werewolves do, apparently. The Cardinal assigns Bozola to seek out Antonio and kill him. After the Cardinal leaves, Bozola does not even make it to the door before he is stopped by Julia, who is brandishing a pistol. She accuses him of having given her a love potion and threatens to kill him to end her love. Bozola manages to disarm her and convince her to gather intelligence for him about the Cardinal. Bozola then hides while Julia uses all of her persuasive power 
powers to get the cardinal to reveal his part in the death of his sister and her children. The cardinal then makes Julia swear to keep silent, forcing her to kiss the poisoned cover of a Bible, causing her to die almost instantly. Basil comes out of hiding to confront the cardinal, although he declares that he still intends to kill Antonio. Giving him a master key, the cardinal leaves. However, once he is alone, Basil swears to protect Antonio and goes off to bury Julia's body. Basil enters to find the cardinal planning to have him killed. Antonio, unaware of Basil, sneaks in while it is dark, planning to seek audience with the cardinal. Not realizing who has entered, Basil attacks Antonio. He's horrified to see his mistake. He manages to relate the death of the duchess and children to the dying Antonio, who is glad to be dying now that life is pointless for him. Basil then leaves to bring down the cardinal. The cardinal, unaware of what has just happened, is reading a book when Basil enters with a servant bearing Antonio's body. Basil kills the servant first and then stabs the cardinal. Ferdinand bursts in, also attacking his brother because he's a werewolf. In the fight, he accidentally wounds Basil. Basil kills Ferdinand and is left with the dying cardinal. The gentlemen who heard cries now enter the room to witness the deaths of the cardinal and Basil. Delio enters too late with Antonio's eldest son and laments the unfortunate events that have passed. Dear God, that's the end of this very long play <laughs> at eight minutes for a summary. Woof. Right. Well, I mean, it is what it is. A lot yeah. happens. The bodies yes. just keep piling up, frankly. Also, an eight-minute summary explains why the one performance that you and I saw of this together was four hours long. That's true. That's true. God, it's... that's not an exaggeration. It was legit four hours, and it was yeah. horrific. It was Horrific. Long. It was really long. <laughs> yeah. I then also saw an additional performance that was billed as 90 minutes with no intermission, and it ended up being two hours and 45 minutes with Lies. no intermission. And I hated everything, and I wanted to do a murder werewolf style <laughs> lies all right okay. what are we reading Let's yeah read it's time for a taste of text in which we read a small but crucial scene from a play to give you a taste of its flavor uh i would like to visit act five scene two the the exchange between julia and her lover the cardinal oh, yeah. um the part where he poisons her with a bible Yes. If we could. Um, do you have a line number? If in my edition that I have, uh it's around line 220, 225. Yeah, where do you want to start? Um let's see. How now, my lord, what ails you? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And let's go through um through basically when Bozala enters. Yeah, can we do that? That's where she yes. kisses that Bible and yeah. dies. Um, do you want to be the cardinal or Julia? Ooh. Um, I'll be the cardinal. All right. Okay. Sure. I'll be that I'll lascivious, be... hypocritical cardinal. I'll be your lover. Yeah. Be my mistress. Excellent. All right. Here we go. Uh-huh. How now, my lord? What ails you? Nothing. Oh, you are much altered. Come, I must be your sexcretary and remove this lead from off your bosom. What's the matter? I may not tell you. Are you so far in love with sorrow you cannot part with part of it? Or think you I cannot love your grace when you are sad as well as merry? Or do you suspect I that have been a secret to your heart these many winters cannot be the same unto your tongue? Satisfy thy longing. The only way to make thee keep my counsel is not to tell thee. Tell your echo this, or flatterers that like echoes still report what they hear, though most imperfect, and not me. For if that you be true unto yourself, I'll know. 
Mm, will you rack me? No, judgment shall draw it from you. It is an equal fault to tell one's secrets unto all or none. The first argues folly. But the last, tyranny. Very well. Why, imagine I have committed some secret deed which I desire the world may never hear of. Therefore may not I know it? You have concealed from me as great a sin as adultery. Sir, never was occasion for perfect trial of my constancy till now. Sir, I beseech you. You'll repent it. Never. It hurries thee to ruin, I'll not tell thee. Be well advised, and think what danger tis to receive a prince's secrets. They that do had need have their breasts hooped with adamant to contain them. I pray thee, yet be satisfied, examine thine own frailty. Tis more easy to tie knots than unloose them. Tis a secret that, like a lingering poison, may chance lie spread in thy veins and kill thee seven year hence. Now you dally with me. No more. Thou shalt know it by my appointment, the great Duchess of Malfi and two of her young children, four nights since, were strangled. Oh, heaven! Sir, what have you done? How now? How settles this? Think you your bosom will be a grave dark and obscure enough for such a secret? You have undone yourself, sir. Why? It lies not in me to conceal it. No? Come, I will swear you to it upon this book. Most religiously. Kiss it. Now you shall never utter it. Thy curiosity hath undone thee. Thou art poisoned with that book, because I knew thou couldst not keep my counsel. I have bound thee to it by death. So here's my question about a poisoned Bible, yeah. as is my question with every poisoned object in the entire canon yep. of early modern drama. If it's poisoned uh -huh. in such a way that if she kisses it, she gon' die. Mm-hmm. How is it not poisoned in such a way that if he is holding it, mm -hmm. he not gonna die? I guess he could be maybe wearing gloves. He could maybe be wearing gloves or he could have it like on a table and not be touching it. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It's a great question. It's a great sort of continuity and logic question. <laughs> Jess Hamlet is asking but like, the real scholarly questions. <laughs> but like, beware when you try to apply logic to an early modern play is all I'm saying. I mean, yes. Buyer beware. <laughs> okay, yeah. So that was a taste of the text. Uh, and uh, the, there's that. You're welcome. Yeah. It's a little kooky. So tell us about werewolves jess oh i'm gonna i'm so, so excited before I, before I get to the werewolf the the only other thing i really want to make sure that i say about this play is that it is two separate plays acts one through four is the tragedy of the duchess of malfi and act five <laughs> is a play about a werewolf <laughs> and that's just the way this play splits down it legitimately is kind of like watching two different plays when you see it it does I've, feel I mean, kind of manic yeah i've only ever seen two productions and they were both terrible um but in each one it was as if act five were some weird afterthought it was like a completely different show in the same season right it they're mm. it was it's Act five is a weird beast because it's a werewolf. Ha ha. Okay. <laughs> um, so in, in the year 1590, so like 25 years before this play premiered on the London stages, a treatise 
a pamphlet, if you will, was was published about a werewolf Amazing. in Germany. Um, so here's here's the title of this pamphlet: A True Discourse. True, it's true. Mm. It says it right in the title. You got to mm-hmm. believe it. A true discourse declaring the damnable life and death of one Stub Peter, a most wicked sorcerer who, in the likeness of a wolf, committed many murders, continuing this devilish practice 25 years, killing and devouring men, women, and children, who, for the same fact, was taken and executed the 31st of October last past in the town of Bedbur, near the city of, I think, Cologne, in Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, truly translated out of the high Dutch, according to the copy printed in, I think, Cologne, brought over unto England by George Boer's ordinary post, the 11th day of this present month of June, 1590, who did both see and hear the same. So <laughs> this tale of this true werewolf. Uh, hit me. I'm ready. It's fucking wild. It's wild. And so I'm just going to read some selections to you yeah so just like strap in babes strap in for for a a i want to hear this true tale of the werewolf i'm so excited most true discourse most true okay in the towns of superdit I don't know. And Bedbur, near unto Cologne in high Germany, there was continually brought up and nourished one Stub Peter, who from his youth was greatly inclined to evil and the practicing of wicked arts, even from 12 years of age till 20, and so forwards till his dying day, insomuch that surfeiting in the damnable desire of magic, necromancy, and sorcery, acquainting himself with many infernal spirits and fiends, insomuch that forgetting that God, the God that made him, and that Savior that shed his blood for man's redemption, in the end, careless of salvation, gave both soul and body to the devil forever, for small carnal pleasure in this life, that he might be famous and spoken of on earth, though he lost heaven thereby. The devil who saw him a fit instrument to perform mischief as a wicked fiend, pleased with the desire of wrong and destruction, gave unto him a girdle, which being put about him, he was straight transformed into the likeness of a greedy, devouring wolf, strong and mighty, with eyes great and large, which in the night sparkled like unto brands of fire, a mouth great and wide with most sharp and cruel teeth, a huge body and mighty paws. Sounds sexy. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's like, hey, daddy. And no sooner should he put off the same girdle, but presently he should appear in his former shape, according to the proportion of a man, as if he had never been changed. Mm. This is my favorite. Uh, It's so good. Stub Peter, herewith, was exceedingly well pleased, and the shape fitted his fancy and agreed best with his nature, being inclined to blood and cruelty. Therefore satisfied with this strange and devilish gift, for that it was not troublesome nor great in carriage, but that it might be hidden in a small room, he proceeded to the execution of sundry most heinous and viled murders. For if any person displeased him, he would incontinent thirst for revenge, and no sooner should they, or any of theirs, walk abroad in the fields or about the 
city, but in the shape of a wolf, he would presently encounter them and never rest till he had plucked out their throats and tear their joints asunder. And after he had gotten a taste hereof, he took such pleasure and delight in shedding of blood that he would night and day walk the fields and work extreme cruelties. In these places, I say, he would walk up and down, and if he could spy either maid, wife, or child that his eyes liked or his heart lusted after, he would wait their issuing out of the city or town. If he could by any means get them alone, he would in the fields ravish them, and after in his wolfish likeness cruelly murder them. Yea, often it came to pass that as he walked abroad in the fields, if he chanced to spy a company of maidens playing together, or else a-milking of their kind, in his wolvish shape, he would incontinent run among them, and while the rest escaped by flight, he would be sure to lay hold of one, and after his filthy lust fulfilled, he would murder her presently. Beside, if he had liked or known any of them, look who he had a mind unto, her he would pursue, whether she were before or behind, and take her from the rest. For such was his swiftness of foot, while he continued a wolf that he would outrun the swiftest greyhound in that country. What a terror. I'm getting out of breath. (laughs) It's a salacious tale. It's leaving you breathless. Thus, this damnable stub Peter lived the term of five and twenty years, unsuspected to be author of so many cruel and unnatural murders, in which time he had destroyed and spoiled an unknown number of men, women, and children, sheep, lambs, and goats, and other cattle. Not the goats. And here is to be noted a most strange thing which setteth forth the great power and merciful providence of God to the comfort of each Christian heart. There were not long ago certain small children playing in a meadow together hard by the town, where also some store of kine were feeding, many of them having young calves sucking upon them. And suddenly among these children comes this vile wolf running and caught a pretty fine girl by the collar with intent to pull out her throat. But such was the will of God that he he could not pierce the collar of the child's coat, being high and well stiffened and close clasped about her neck. And therewith all the sudden great cry, oh, and therewithal, and, yeah, and therewithal, the sudden great cry of the rest of the children which escaped, so amazed the cattle feeding by that being fearful to be robbed of their young, they all together came running against the wolf with such force that he was presently compelled to let go his hold and to run away to escape the danger of their horns, which by means the child was preserved from death, and God be thanked remains living at this day. Wear coats and you will not be killed by a werewolf. Wear coats with high collars. <sighs> That are starched really well, I guess, and nice and stiff. We're in the home stretch. We're gonna we're gonna catch and please kill yes. The I'm dying now. to know how he was caught. Okay, I'm like hyperventilating a little bit. Uh, okay, so the city people are like, "Hey, what's going on? How can we f- f- find the the devilish author of all of these misdeeds?" Obviously. And although they had practiced all the means that men could devise to take this ravenous beast, yet until the Lord had determined his fall, they could not in any wise prevail, notwithstanding. They daily continued their purpose and daily sought to entrap him, and for that intent continually maintained great masts and dogs of much strength to hunt and chase the beast wheresoever they could find him. 
in the end, it pleased God, as they were in readiness and provided to meet with him, that they should espy him in his wolvish likeness, at what time they beset him round about, and most circumspectly set their dogs upon him, in such sort that there was no means to escape, at which advantage they never could get him before, but as the Lord delivered Goliath into the hands of David, so was this wolf brought in danger of these men, who seen, as I said before, no way to escape the imminent danger, being hardly pursued at the heels, presently he slipped his girdle from about him, whereby the shape of a wolf clean avoided, and he appeared presently in his true shape and likeness, having in his hand a staff as one walking toward the city. But the hunters, whose eyes was steadfastly bent upon the beast, and seeing him in the same place metamorphosed contrary to their expectation, it wrought a wonderful amazement in their minds. And had it not been that they knew the man so soon as they saw him, they had surely taken the same to have been some devil in a man's likeness. But forasmuch as they knew him to be an ancient dweller in the town, they came unto him, and talking with him, they brought him by communication home to his own house, and finding him to be the man indeed, and no delusion or fantastical uh, fantastical motion, they had him incontinent before the magistrates to be examined. Thus being apprehended, he was shortly after put to the rack in the town of Bedber, but fearing the torture, he voluntarily confessed his whole life and made known the villainies which he had committed for the space of 25 years. Also, he confessed how by sorcery he procured of the devil a girdle, which being put on, he forthwith became a wolf, which girdle at his apprehension he confessed, he cast it off in a certain valley and there left it, which when the magistrates heard, they sent to the valley for it, but at their coming found nothing at all, for it may be supposed that it was gone to the devil from whence it came, so that it was not to be found. For the devil, having brought the wretch to all the shame he could, left him to endure the torments which his deeds deserved. So it sounds like this guy spent two and a half decades raping and murdering in his community. Yeah. And then when he got caught, blamed it on being a werewolf. Yeah. That's what it sounds like to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> after after he had some space been imprisoned, the magistrates found out through due examination of the matter that his daughter, Stubb Bell, and his gossip, Catherine Trompen, were both accessory to divers murders committed, who for the same as also for their leaved life, loved life, otherwise committed, was arraigned and with Stubb Peter condemned and their several judgments pronounced the 28th of October, 1589. In this manner, that is to say, Stubb Peter Peter's principal malefactor was judged first to have his body laid on a wheel and with red hot burning pincers in 10 several places to have the flesh pulled off from the bones. And after that, his legs and arms to be broken with a wooden axe or hatchet afterward to have his head struck from his body and then to have his carcass burned to ashes. Oh my God. The Germans don't play. (sighs) Also... Holy his daughter shit. and his gossip were judged to be burned quick to ashes the same time and day with the carcass of the aforesaid Stubb Peter. And on the 31st of the same month, they suffered death accordingly in the town of Bedburg in the presence of many peers and princes of Germany. Oh, my God. God be praised. So on and so forth. Oh, my God. Werewolf. Historic. In Germany. Wow. Like, have you ever heard anything so fantastical in your life? Wow. No, I haven't. Yeah. I just, I just want to shout out 
Leah asked Marcus, who is the editor of the Arden version of the, the Duchess of Malfi, for including the entirety of that pamphlet as an appendix. Amazing. God bless Leah. God bless. Also, yeah. like, her scholarship is just amazing. Yeah. So, so I mean, I assume that because she had it as an appendix in the Arden, it's assumed to be a source text for some of this. Or a, a, an um, inspiration for some of this? Or like... I would imagine it would not be uh, out of the realm of possibility to assume that uh, a, a scandalous story such as this was widely read in early modern England. Um, it was, of course, you know, printed 1590, so Webster himself was 10. But like... Sure. You know, he he could have caught wind of that in in any yeah. kind of way, especially if, you know, he is that street urchin who yeah. likes the gruesome things. Yeah. Well, and that's a pretty classic sort of boogeyman story, I imagine. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I imagine that a story like that would become legendary pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, even through oral tradition, if not, you know, even if young, young kid Webster couldn't read it at yeah. the time, you know. Isn't that great, though? It's kind of awesome. (laughs) Normally, I'm like, all right, let's talk about textual instability because I'm a nerd. But today I'm like, werewolves, bitches. And aren't you glad for that? I am. So for a little bit of production perspective, you need to be careful about time and continuity for this play. Um, Webster does not follow the Aristotelian unity of time. In any way, uh, somewhere between Acts one and two, the Duchess carries a baby to term, and has a has a baby, uh, and then by Act three, she has had two more babies. So I mean, even if she and Antonio are banging like rabbits, she would still need about I mean, it's nine months ish per baby, right? Assuming each one went fully to term, uh, plus maybe maybe a month or two in between if Antonio's being kind to his wife's vagina. So I mean, um, at least a month or two. Like I, I don't would know exactly hope. how long it takes to conceive after, but you can't even have sex for like months. Uh, well, I mean, you can rips to your asshole. Sometimes it does. But I do know, you know, even from experience in my own family that sometimes kids come pretty close together. So like, you know, at your own peril, but still like you can get it on in as little as a month after delivering. Um, I mean, I can't attest to how pleasant that is for the mother, but like you, it can happen. So anyway, you know, I mean, give it about like three years between acts have elapsed between acts one and three. And then the events after act three happen within like a week, I guess, like mm-hmm. a week or two, maybe mm-hmm. um, no more than about seven to 10 days. So, yeah. Uh, so like be careful about time and continuity uh, and thinking about how maybe you want to show aging or time that that lapse of time just think about how you want to show that lapse of time other than a pregnant belly because you really you only get one of those um, and the duchess is trying very hard to hide it uh in in act 2 she's like oh look how fat i am ha <laughs> and they make somebody makes a note about like how loose her clothing is these days and then she poops out a baby so i noticed right from the get go uh, so jess i'm i'm coming at you a tiny bit about your feelings about act 5 because i found i found wolf foreshadowing and wolf language all the way through the play like webster is signaling that it's that it's going to happen 
Um, and it's mostly from Ferdinand. So, you know, make of that what you will. But it's it's there, I think. It lives there. I also kind of feel like Act 5, Webster is showing us what happens to the perpetrators of a murder. Like, he's giving us the repercussions of the murder. That's the tie-in for me. That's the story that my brain told as I was reading this. And I can't say as I was watching it, because like you said, the last one that we saw was not great for that. But I, I feel like that's where that's how Act 5 and the other four previous acts of the play kind of fit together. Like, we see the Duchess's story, um, and like, she is the victim of you know, and then she dies. And then there's sort of the aftermath of what happens to all of the people who enacted that on her. So it's like karma coming to get them. But but the the werewolf stuff, the wolf imagery is all the way through the text. Like it's happening from the beginning. In terms of casting, the two roles that I find the most intriguing as an actor, I love and I love to hate Bozola. Um, I think you need somebody who's got like who can carry a role like Iago or Richard III. Because of that, there's a lot of, he makes a lot of asides and a lot of audience contact and he makes us complicit uh, as much as he is complicit. Um, but he also sort of, he's got his own, I'm not, I don't know if I should even, I, in my outline, I wrote a heart of gold. I'm not sure gold is the metal I would actually apply to his heart. Maybe pyrite, <laughs> um, <laughs> like something like gold, um, but like he's got his own sort of sense of honor uh, and integrity, and it's not entirely like good, kind of the way a pirate has integrity, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? Like the code of honor amongst thieves or something. But like he's got he's got like his own sort of internal compass, um, and he finally realizes that what he's been doing and what he's been participating in is terrible and he tries to make up for it and then only ends up making things worse which I think makes him sort of a tragically ironic figure but in casting that person you need a you need an actor who can carry that without being um ironic or self-judging or like commenting on the performance while they're doing it so I think that's really hard I think that's a hard thing to do I think the duchess is a rad role She's awesome. She kind of, I mean, she does what she wants. She fulfills the um, the early modern stereotype of the widow that everyone was afraid of. Um, I did a whole, for Mary Hill, for Dr. Mary Hill Cole's class when we were in graduate school, I did this, my paper on single women and unmarried women. But what I had to research first, yeah, but what I had to research first was like the culture of marriage and widowhood. Um, and there was no one that aside from single, never married women, there there was no kind of woman that early modern men feared more than a widow because she had the sexual know-how of a married lady, but she was unencumbered by a man. <laughs> and like, so she had all kinds of freedom and power. And if she married right, she probably also inherited his stuff. So she had her own means and she was not obligated to marry again. And there was nothing at all that disrupted the social order more than a widow. And the stereotype of the lusty widow comes from that, right? That widows are somehow insatiable sexually and they're uncontrollable. And I love it. But but the Duchess, she kind of fulfills that, except that she's known, like she's reputed at the beginning of the play to be a virtuous woman. Um, and she does, you know, she marries the guy she likes. It just happens to be a guy who is her steward. So he's beneath her in terms of status. And she knows that her brothers are 
fucking crazy. So she has to, you know, leave it secret. Um, so she she does everything on the up and up and she just kind of doesn't care. <laughs> She's like out here having babies and having her husband and having a great life until her brothers find out and kill her for it. And But even in her death scene, she like she takes back the the narrative i think when they're when when yeah. men not her brothers notably but when men are brought in to strangle her she she completely controls the narrative uh and i i love that and so to get someone find someone when you're casting who can carry the gravity uh the gravitas that that a a character like that needs um so be careful is what I'm saying when you're casting Bozla and the Duchess. Um, Antonio's cool too. Some of the, you know, Ferdinand, yeah, I, I think in my, I have the Oxford edition here. I think it said Richard Burbage originated uh, Ferdinand, which, yeah, um, which is kind of awesome. So like that's sort of a big and coveted role too because of the werewolf stuff. Um, but I think Bozola and the Duchess are actually the two most intriguing characters for me. Um, this play has several what we like to call on this pod buck basket moments, right? Tough moments to stage. One in particular is the dumb show of the banishment, which I will read the stage direction to you now because it is sort of convoluted and bonkers. Okay. So this is Act 3, Scene 4. This is right after um, basically the Duchess and Antonio have tried to go their separate ways or they're trying, you know, they're trying to get away from her crazy brothers uh, and the Cardinal is going to interrupt them by banishing them. So here's the stage direction. Uh, Here the ceremony of the Cardinal's installment in the habit of a soldier performed in delivering up his cross, hat, robes, and ring at the shrine and investing him with sword, helmet, shield, and spurs. Then Antonio, the Duchess, and their children, having presented themselves at the shrine, are, by a form of banishment in dumb show expressed towards them by the Cardinal and the State of Ancona, banished. During all by which ceremony this ditty is sung to very solemn music by diverse churchmen, and then exunt, except for the two pilgrims. And then a song follows that I won't sing to you now, uh, um, but it, there's a little, a little ditty as Webster puts it. Uh, and so so you've got to stage that, and it's a little vague about what this banishment dumb show is. So you have to decide how you want to stage that. Uh, so that's back, buck basket moment number one. Buck basket moment number two is act four, scene one, that's performed partially in darkness and with several macabre, bloodied, I would presume, wax figures that look like mutilated bodies of Antonio and her and the Duchess's son uh, and her other kids, I guess. So you've got that. So you've got to get those wax figures, um, but also how you're going to play the darkness. Um, and even so, even if you were working with lights and spotlights and stuff, how you're going to do it? That's tricky. Then there's in that same scene, uh, a madman dance party with a coffin. Um, sorry, that's not the same as 4-1. That's 4-2. It's the next scene. Um, so you've got a bunch of madmen dancing and singing. There's a little song in there written for them. Um, in the same scene as the Duchess's execution, which is itself a bit of a buck basket. Like, there's a coffin, and then there's some ropes, and, like, ha- figuring out how to stage the way she is strangled, it's, it's vague in the text. So there's a lot of freedom, I suppose, uh, in how you do it. Um, but basically they use the ropes to 
you know, pull tight on her neck and then presumably put her in that coffin. So how are you going to stage that? Also, there's a really weird scene in Act 5 where there's some echoing happening. And like, what the fuck is that? What is that? What is it? It's bonkers. Yeah. It is weird. What is up with that? And how are you going to stage it? I mean, you know, echoing, I guess, as sound effects go, is not a particularly difficult thing to do. But like, but like, how does it fit? How does it fit in the narrative of the rest of this play is my question. Like, does it support a supernatural narrative that's developing in Act 5? I, I don't I don't know. I have so many questions about the Echo. It's It really does appear to sort of out of nowhere. Speaking of supernatural stuff, ask yourself, how much do you want to lean into the werewolf thing? Like, the characters in the play, a few of them say that it's an imbalance in Ferdinand's humors, and they say that he's mad, but he it doesn't say that he's, like, not not actually turning into a werewolf could he be actually turning into a werewolf i don't know it's an interesting choice i'm not sure how it would play but i'd love to see it also an interesting note textually all of ferdinand's lines shift to prose post-murder as he becomes a werewolf and goes a little crazy so that's interesting weirder things have happened in the early modern theatrical universe so like i don't know i don't know how supernatural do you want it to be if at all I don't it's it's a question do we want an actual werewolf by the end of the play I don't know I, I kind of like it so those are my questions to which I don't have a bunch of answers uh, but stuff to think about if you're gonna do a production of this play it's real weird love it let's <laughs> gossip <laughs> um, okay so the folder has put out on their YouTube channel their 2008 production of Macbeth starring um, some guy as Macbeth but Kate Eastwood Norris as Lady Mac yes. um, and it was co-directed by Aaron Posner and Teller of Penn and Teller fame um, and let me tell y'all the effects are exactly as good as you would expect them to be for having been co-directed by Teller of Penn and Teller fame. Nice. The production as a whole is really interesting. They make some interesting choices with staging particularly and the way they transition in and out of scenes. Um, The costumes are real bad. real real bad it's like 90s utilikilt grunge with like weird utilikilts on the bottom and i think you mispronounced great no no no. oversized (laughs) cardigans on the top and it's like it's not it's not good it's not cute it's not a cute okay um (laughs) but also for you aubrey to know and for i guess maybe some percentage of our listenership uh in the second row of this performance are uh doreen and jp what yeah what (laughs) yeah oh yeah yeah and and uh doreen gets hassled by the porter i love it yeah it's amazing um so yeah it's it's free on the folger youtube from now until i think the end of june 2020 so give it uh, a check it out it's a nice tight performance it's broken up into two parts um before and after intermission obs maybe that's not obs it's broken up into two parts before and after intermission um but it runs at like two hours and five minutes it's just like it it clips along real nice so yeah Give it, give it a check out if you've got two hours and five minutes to spare, because it's pretty great. 
cool. Uh, another beloved institution that's streaming some of its productions for free uh, is The Globe. The Globe has recently made that announcement. It's been all over social media. Uh, so go to their website and see which productions they've got. I haven't looked into it yet. I just wanted to put it out there for free. They are streaming their productions. Um, oh, I also wanted to add in here, and I just remembered, the Oregon Shakespeare Festival has announced that it will hopefully be able to resume uh, in-person productions. They want to Poor Nataki Garrett, like this is her inaugural year yeah. as artistic director, and she is like scrambling like hell to try to resurrect some of it. But they're going to so they're going to have a limited run of, I think, six of their 11 previously scheduled shows from September through November. So a limited run of shows for those three, four months. Um, so, the, you know, OSF is doing what a lot of theaters are doing, which is shutting down for everyone's safety, but yeah. but also trying to pick back up at some point this year and not have it be a total wash. Um, so that wasn't on my agenda, but it jogged my memory. Um, one more thing, the little tiny project that I'm working on, you may have heard Jess and me mention our MFA company, Sweet Wag Shakespeare. Well, the wags are reviving just a little bit in a what we call the Waglet series, um, which will be three-minute Hamlet videos, Hamlet interpretations, Hamlet adaptations, whatever, three minutes long, every Friday for about the next six weeks, or maybe more, depending on if more wags of the 11 of us want to jump on that bandwagon. Yes. No, um, hard <laughs> But it's on our Facebook page, so Sweet Wag Shakespeare, uh, and it will also be paired with, you know, some fundraising, so the donations will go to the charity of the wag's choice. Um, my video is first. It will be this Friday. So that will be, what, three days before this episode comes out. So you can you'll be able to find it. It'll be out. You'll be able to find it. And the next one will be the following Friday and so on and so forth. So check it out. Mine features my cats. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Okay, so because I was not involved in this at all um, and only learned about it from you and this right now. uh, So the donations go to the charity of each individual wag's choice or the wags as a whole? Okay. Each individual wag's choice. Yes. Great. What's your charity of choice? Um, I, you know, I'm going to be supporting my institution, the American Shakespeare Center. Oh, very good. Very good. Yeah. So this is also cool. And this I just saw today and I'm frantically trying to find a better link, but I don't think there is one. The University of Pennsylvania Press or question mark Pennsylvania State University Press, whichever one is Penn, because I'm not sure which one is Penn. Yeah, University of Pennsylvania Press. Um, they are giving away free ebooks cool. from now until the end of June. And that seems to be no strings attached. You can just go download a PDF of whatever book in their catalog. Cool. Um, yeah, um, it's cool, and they have some cool shit, and it's not just early modern stuff, although that's probably what is primarily of interest to our listeners, but also I assume that our listeners are multifaceted individuals with more than one interest in things. Mm. So um, I think that's asking a bit much. Well. <laughs> I think our listeners are very one note. <laughs> yes. Uh, that's what I got. Free books, though, man. You know. Love free books. Get your Fucking reading in free when books. we're all in isolation. Yeah. So, all right. Well, that's what we got. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. We hope you leave the podcast more informed than when you started about a lot of stuff. 
Yeah, uh, tune in next week for a surprise play because we haven't decided yet what we're doing. Um, I'm going to make Aubrey read something batshit and then we're going to tell you about it. So I can promise that it's going to be... It's going to be not Shakespeare and it's going to be batshit. Nice. um, So so come for the bat and stay for the shit? I don't know. Oh, that's not enticing. (laughs) Come for the shit. Try not to die of anticipation in the next week. Trying to figure out what we're going to do. I know I will. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. I'm all a tingle with anticipation. (laughs) Are you you flutter? I am. I am. Do you need the vapors? I might. Do you have the vapors? No, not currently. I don't have the vapors. Should should I get you a a fainting couch for you to collapse delicately on with your lace handkerchief in the dark? Yes. Yes, please. Do I also okay. have tuberculosis in this scenario? No, with my with my kerchief. You don't. You don't need any any diseases here. No, it's true. I don't. Not 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 in this economy. Oh my god! All right, stay well out there, folks. Yeah, stay, stay home and wash your hands. Yeah. Ramlet out. Ramlet out. If you enjoyed our podcast, please tell your friends, rate us, leave us a review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For show notes and other fun stuff, you can visit our website at www.hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. Yeah, get in touch with us. Tell us what you're working on and thinking about. Email us at holla at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can also find us at hurlyburlyshakes on Instagram. Or at hurlyburlyshake, no S, on Twitter. The Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show is produced and edited by Aubrey Whitlock and Jess Hamlet. All opinions you heard are strictly our own and not affiliated with the institutions we represent. So if I'm going to make you read a batshit play, do you want to read something that's funny or something that's a revenge tragedy? I don't care. Hit me with your Ugh. best shot. Ugh. You pick You pick the one you think I'm going to like the most. Try that. Oh, Here's a challenge. Shit. Shit. <laughs>